we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, and today we're talking about Ukrainian refugees, the issue broadly, both in the U.S., but also in Europe, where most of them are. And joining us today is Nayla Rush, who is on our staff as an analyst here and has written a paper on our website on this Ukrainian refugee issue, just sort of an overview of what's going on with the Europeans, but also specifically what's going on in the U.S. as far as our refugees being resettled from Ukraine, you know, sort of what's the story. And Nela, thanks for joining us. And if you could just give us some of the high points to get us started about your paper. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Hi, everybody. Of course, following what happened on February 24th and the Russian attack on Ukraine, and we started seeing the flow of Ukrainians leaving the country to neighboring countries. I wanted to look mainly at where were they going, how were they welcomed in these countries they were going to, if there was a framework set by the EU, the European Union. I wanted to look also at the response from the United States to this recent flow of refugees and look also at the Ukrainian population we have here through the resettlement, refugee resettlement mainly. And following that, I wanted also to kind of put face to face, which some commentators have, about the 2015 crisis of the mainly Syrian refugees, and there were some Iraqis, Afghans, etc., leaving mainly the Middle East to go to Europe and how they were not very warmly welcomed by some commentators. And I want to counteract this argument a little bit. Just to begin with, what are we talking about? There's, I believe, 4 million Ukrainians roughly, right, have left the country? Yeah, over like 4.4 maybe by now. It adds every day, obviously, and the longer and the more with geographical width of the conflict, people will flee more. So you have around 4.4 who went to neighboring countries. Of course, I always like to say to remind people, most refugees, when they flee, obviously, for apparent reason, logistics, but also cultural, language, proximity, etc., they go to neighboring countries. That's any refugees, in other any words, whether it's Ukrainians in, in Poland or yeah. Somalis in Kenya or anything, right? Third movements can come later, but the initial movement is to neighboring countries. So we have mostly over 2.4 went to Poland and other countries, Hungary, Romania, Moldavia, a few hundred thousand. And already you have a big population of, of Ukrainians who were economic migrants in many, many, like 1.5 million in Poland alone. Before the war. Before the war. Right. So people had some kind of connection, friends, family, etc. And 
they would go to the countries where they had these connections. That's also another thing about migration is that people usually use their networks more often than not. So most of the Ukrainians are in Europe, obviously. What is the situation there? In other words, what we're hearing is that they're welcomed and what have you, but what's their status? What's their situation in the EU? Well, usually Ukrainians don't need a visa to stay in European countries. Even before the war? Before the war, they don't need a visa. They can stay, I think, 60 days out of 180 each time. They could stay without a visa two months and then leave and then come back. So what happened now, this move, is the European Union met and they decided to give what's called temporary protection, which is not like the United States temporary protection. We'll go back to that later, which gives the right, a residence permit for Ukrainian refugees, access to employment, housing, etc., education, medical care, etc., for all the Ukrainians who left. Also for the Ukrainians who have status as refugees who used to be in Ukraine and had to leave too, or international protections. Other nationals who are living in Ukraine are going to be helped to go back to their own homes. Because there were a lot of students like from Africa and elsewhere. So the point is they're letting them in, but they're letting them in to take them to the airport and fly home. Yeah, unless if it's impossible, they will give them some type of protection. But uh, with this protection that the temporary protection has been decided for one year. It can be extended twice, six months, another year. And if the third year has to be agreed upon, and it can be ended at any time. What I think was learned from a lesson in in the late 1990s from the Kosovo crisis, when you saw also flows of refugees in Europe then, is that there was no coordination and people went where in a country that offered the most benefits. Uh. So uh, to avoid that and to kind of harmonize the move, they gave them this temporary protection. However, if you get a temporary protection in one country, you can't go and live in another country. You, you, can, can or you cannot go uh. and get employed into another. You can go visit, but the temporary protection is a residency of this specific country. Interesting. You mentioned at the beginning, the Syrians thing. So why don't we just briefly talk about that? I mean, that's a lot of people, folks on the left especially, have been saying, well, you know, Europe's, they're hypocrites or racists or what have you by letting the Europeans in, but not letting all the Afghans and Syrians and others, who, which was back in 2015. What's the difference between those two flows? If we want to be fair in comparing, I think that the whole thing was looked at from a specific angle, which is the wrong angle. It's like, we're welcoming Ukrainians, we didn't welcome Syrians, or at least weren't as warm as welcoming Syrians and Iraqis, etc. It's because of the religion, it's because Europeans are racist, that exceeds the claim. My point is, Ukrainians left to neighboring countries, right? And the neighboring countries opened their doors to them. Right. The same thing happened with, let's stick with the Syrian crisis, because that's the most number. Sure, back in 2015, they were mostly Syrians, right? They were mostly Syrians. Millions of Syrians had left Syria. In 2011, the war started in Syria. Syrians started leaving in 2011 and going to neighboring countries. Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, etc. Turkey, probably most of them. Turkey, most of them in Turkey. And then these countries opened the doors just as European countries opened the doors to Ukrainians. However, in 2015, the movement of these refugees, Syrian refugees, started moving towards Europe. 
meaning these Syrian refugees were in a safe country, in a country of asylum, what we call them a host country. Yes, they were struggling, of course. They had probably not such a good time uh, finding a job, etc. Harsh conditions, but they were safe. They were not in a country of war. They were not in danger for their lives. Right. So why in 2015 did we see this huge movement, a huge flow into Europe of Syrians? Because people maybe uh, forgot about that. In 2015, Russia intervened officially in the war. In, in, Syria. in Syria, and the planes, Russian plane, bombed the opposition in Syria. Supposedly, they were going to target ISIS only, but they did also target the opposition, meaning they helped the president, Bashar al-Assad, stay in power. In right. power. And so this was a signal to most Syrians who wanted to go back that Bashar al-Assad was not leaving soon, and then hence this crisis is going to go forever. So let's start moving a little bit. Turkey allowed, ah, Turkey allowed some movement, and then the flows started going, and then we had a tragic accident like the death of a little boy. It was tragic. Public opinion was very moved. And then Angela Merkel said, you can come to Germany. We don't apply the Dublin Agreement, etc., and hence the hundreds of thousands over a million going then. So right. you cannot compare, I think, in all fairness, both. Situation. So essentially, if you're going to compare it, you have to compare the Syrians going to Turkey and Jordan and Iraq and Lebanon. That is what's comparable to the Iraqis going to Poland and Hungary and Romania. It's the 2015 crisis was people who were already somewhere would be like the Ukrainians from Poland who are now in Poland going to some other country far away. I mean, I'm not sure where they'd want to go from there, but if they were, say, going to Algeria or something, they were already in Poland, just as the Syrians were already in Turkey. Well, uh, a good example would be some in Poland are coming to the United States. Right. We've well, seen some, a few thousands, I think. The HS secretary said around 3,000. There are other reports about around 10,000 who made it to Mexico and are trying to enter the United so States. So let's talk about that, about the, this sort of next step. In other words, Ukrainians were already in somewhere, Poland or Romania or Hungary or what have you, then moving on to come here. And President Biden had said that we would be taking as many as 100,000 Ukrainians, although it's not clear what time frame, is that one year, is that 10 years, whatever it is. And there's also a special loophole in the law for people from the former Soviet Union who are religious minorities called the Lautenberg Amendment. So talk a little bit about what's the story with Ukrainians coming to the U.S. Initially, the Biden administration had said most refugees want to go to neighboring countries. They want to be close to their country so they can go back fast. We're sending them a lot of money, humanitarian aid, etc. I go into detail about this specific aid in my report. After a month or so, a little bit with pressure by refugee advocates, President Biden from Brussels changed his mind and said, we are ready to welcome around 100,000, like you said. However, 100,000, if it's this fiscal year, 2022, the ceiling, the refugee resettlement ceiling is 125,000. Already some 8,000 have made it to the United States. So it means that we are going to forget all other refugees who are waiting somewhere. 
who are also struggling, who are probably in a situation of war and then accept Ukrainian. It's not clear. Probably a lot worse off, actually. I mean, if you're in some Congolese refugee camp, you're mm. a lot worse off than a Ukrainian who's living in Poland, even though that person probably is in straightened circumstances. I mean, it's not like they're living the life of Riley, but they're in a safe country with work permit where they they don't even have to be in refugee camps. Whereas there's plenty of other refugees that we would potentially be resettling that are in much worse conditions. I agree totally. So what is happening is that probably these Ukrainians who are we're seeing coming to Mexico, first they can fly. Right. So they have some money. They have the money. They made it through to Mexico. And then one to come to the United States, probably because they already have family here. We right. have, like you said, you mentioned the Lothenburg Agreement. That was a long time ago was to help a religious minority from what was the Soviet Union, from right. persecution. However, as we know, like many programs who are on automatic pilot mode, they get renewed every year automatically. So it's been renewed automatically every year. Ukrainians can come to the United States as refugees. We're not talking about this crisis. We're talking right. about before, throughout the years, the decades. And just to be clear, also from Russia itself, this is all the former Soviet Union. So the thing here, of course, is the Soviet Union is dead, but the Lautenberg Amendment is still alive. It's still alive. So probably what they're going to do is use this Lautenberg Amendment, which has become like a family reunification. Right. And I don't want to go into too many details here, but it has the P2 category priority in the refugee resettlement program, meaning you don't have to prove you're persecuted even individually. You just have to show that you're part of a minority of a religion and a nationality, and then you have family here. And actually, it's not even really clear whether minority is the right word for Ukrainians, because the Lautenberg Amendments covers basically all Protestants from the former Soviet Union, all Jews from the former Soviet Union, and members of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and I think that means it doesn't include members of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine, but they'll just say, I'm Ukrainian Orthodox Church. So basically, everybody in Ukraine could qualify, to be perfectly honest. Exactly. You have an affidavit from here to sure. bring your relative and you come. So probably President Biden is thinking of that when he said we're going to give priority to those who have family already here. So that's what's going to happen. However, these numbers will not be as 100,000 or as many as those who fled to the European well, countries, obviously, yeah. obviously. I want to go back here to one important point. A ceiling, this refugee resettlement ceiling set by President Biden for this fiscal year 2022 is 125,000. It is a ceiling, meaning it is a promise. However, we still, six months into the year, only 8,000 or so have been admitted. So you can say, and the president or this administration or any other president can say 100, 200, 300, however, effectively, that's a different thing. So right. is he saying this to appease the public opinion or is it doable? Right. Yeah. Well, and the refugee ceiling you were talking about is for all refugee resettlement. It's a good question, though. It's, might as well mention it now. Why is the number so low? I mean, the Biden administration looks like it's going to be admitting fewer refugees through the resettlement program than the Trump administration did. What's the issue there? Well, uh, the official uh, reason from the Biden administration, it's obviously Trump. Blame it on Trump. He dismantled the refugee resettlement organization and and we're going to have to build it again. And it, it's, He's also the reason the weather is bad and their car doesn't start and everything yeah, else. Yeah, probably. 
And the reason is, well, in my opinion, first and foremost, the crisis at the border, all federal resources have been diverted to deal with these people coming from Central America and unaccompanied minors, but adults also. The second crisis that came to top things up was the Afghan crisis. Mm-hmm. They were admitted, the evacuees were evacuated into the United States without a visa. They were paroled in. A parole does not have the right and benefits as a refugee. However, there's a bill that was voted that gave all the benefits of a refugee resettlement program to the Afghan parolees and the future Afghan parolees who can bring their families here. So basically what you're saying is that our capacity to deal with refugees is overwhelmed because we're dealing with not just the Afghans that we brought here, but also at the border, just to be clear for listeners, the problem there, the crisis there is that we're letting all these people in to be ostensibly to apply for asylum. So basically our system of dealing with humanitarian immigration is already overwhelmed and that's limiting our ability even to bring in refugees up to whatever cap it is that President Biden has set. And perhaps the most important point to be made here is that all these who are coming who are not refugees right, and applying for asylum overwhelming the system, while refugees who really need the protection are being left on right. the side. Look at what's happening in Ukraine, Mark. These millions went to neighboring countries. They did not apply for asylum. Right. Even though, obviously, they would have had asylum the second because, you know, they're fleeing war. So there was another type of protection was set up for them, which was faster and more efficient. And they got the right this to stay. This is that temporary protection. That's a temporary protection. Right. While here, you know, compare this to the situation of the border in the U.S. and the Central American miners coming and will not get a claim for asylum, who are not asylum seekers but are applying for asylum, while real asylum seekers are not applying for asylum. Those who are coming here are applying for asylum just to enter the country, to be able to come in. So it does suggest how broken the very concept of asylum is, because our asylum system is being used basically for purposes of illegal immigration. And in Europe, they're skipping their asylum system altogether and just giving the people who are genuine asylum seekers some other status because it's just easier to do. I mean, it does highlight how asylum as a institution under the UN Refugee Convention has really, I mean, in my opinion, outlived its usefulness. It's just not being used the way it was intended, and it's being misused in ways that probably were not envisioned at the time back in the 50s when it was set up. Exactly. And that is one part of this decision that the EU made to give temporary protection, saying that we don't want to overwhelm the asylum system. So millions of refugees and has set up a process fast and efficient. And we are here overwhelming a system that shouldn't be overwhelmed like this. And we are leaving alone refugees who really need us. Another, maybe you want to let me mention a little bit, two more things that the U.S. is doing. It's allowing Ukrainians coming to the border here right. to apply for asylum. And, and we're letting them in even despite the Title yeah. 42 restrictions, which are still in place at when we're recording this. But they're letting them, they're letting Ukrainians in at the Tijuana-San Isidro border crossing, while other people who aren't Ukrainians are still waiting there saying, you know, what are we, chopped liver? Hmm. Uh, so you can see why it would, you know, 
get some resentment from people. The other thing is that they are giving them TPS, those who are already here, which is temporary protection status, right. which means they cannot be deported. And they get work permits. And they get work permits, true. And the interesting thing there is, I mean, it's not the same as that European status. They call it the same, temporary protection. But here, we use it routinely. It's not in Europe. I think that was a unusual thing, right? Was that the first time they'd used it? That was a historic decision. Right, yes. right. So it was the first time they used their version of what we call TPS here, temporary protected status. We use it almost routinely. In fact, this administration has already given it to, what, half a million people, something like that. And as far as I can tell, and I've looked around, no one has ever been removed from the United States because their TPS expired. It's basically really a permanent status. It's not a temporary status. If I had to bet, I'd be willing to put $5 down that none of those Ukrainians is ever going to be made to leave either. In other words, that their temporary status in Europe isn't going to be temporary. Some of them will go back if the war ends, but no one's going to be made to go back because their temporary status expired. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I don't buy it. I mean, and so, you know, there is a certain amount of dishonesty there, whether we do it or the Europeans do it and calling it temporary. You can see why for political reasons, for their own voters, they would want to say that. But there's nothing as permanent as a temporary refugee. I just don't believe it. I agree, but I don't think it'll be as autopilot mode as here. I think it they might stop it, find some other way, another Well, they'll avenue. come up with a different label, but yeah, I mean, there's still... Yeah, another avenue. Yeah. yeah. The temporary part of any of those, I think, is more for domestic political consumption. It's like the sugar that makes the medicine go down. They really ought to be saying up front, okay, folks, none of these people are leaving, or we're not going to make any of them leave if they don't want to leave. That's why, and this is a broader issue with regard to refugee resettlement, when we help people near their country, in the neighboring country where they've taken refuge, they're a whole lot more likely to go back when things settle down. The Ukrainians who moved to Sacramento, they're never going back. I mean, some of them might, but they're not going to be going. How many Afghans went back after the Soviet Union lost? Iran and Pakistan pushed some back. We never made anybody leave, and they're not going to leave. When you resettle people thousands of miles away, they're never going home. Whereas, you know, from Poland, they might be going home when the war ends. True. Also, what the United States is doing is we are the number one funder of all these organizations who right. deal with refugees and migrants, IOM, UNHCR, etc. And only on this, just for the Ukrainian, there were, I think, four billion promised as humanitarian aid for these right. refugees and the countries who are welcoming them. Another one billion was promised by President Biden. So. We give money, but we also invest also a lot on people who come here. And so I don't know how much you can do both ways as well as you think you are. Yeah. And I mean, the research we've done on this is for refugees from the Middle East, but it costs a lot more to bring somebody here. Mm -hmm. um, and even if they get here on their own, they have some money saved up. They fly to Tijuana. They walk to the port of entry and say, let me in. And we let them in. If they're let in, if they do get refugee status or if they're given asylum, they qualify for all kinds of benefits, and it ends up costing us more than sending the money to Poland or to UNHCR for them to take care of people where they are next door to their own country. It's interesting you mentioned this because the Biden administration has just decided 
to increase the monthly help that the cash that they gave refugees, which was eight months. Mm-hmm. This is all refugees. All refugees to 12, all refugees, unaccompanied minors, et cetera, et cetera, to 12 months. From eight months to 12, to 12 months. months. That has okay. been increased recently this month. Right. So, so that adds up to, as you said, because yes, you want to help refugees integrate, succeed, et cetera, but it's at a huge cost too. Right, yeah. And the money isn't infinite. You could argue we should spend more money on refugee protection or less money or whatever, but whatever we do spend, Seems like it should be helping the most people. And if you're bringing one person here for what it costs to help 10 or 12 people near their own country where they've taken their immediate refuge, and I've written about this before, I just don't think that's right. I think it's, not, it's morally indefensible to take large numbers of refugees who already have somewhere else to go rather than spend that money on the places they were already in, Syrians in Turkey or Ukrainians in Poland or whatever it is. What's interesting too is as much as President Trump was criticized for lowering the ceiling and admitting lower number of refugees, President Biden has not been criticized yet and his numbers are lower than President Trump. Right. Well, I'm sure he is being criticized to some degree by the contractors who make money off of that. I no, mean, the because, the, because the contractors have been given new tasks ah. at the border and with the Afghan parolees, ah. so they have their so hands still, full. They're still making money, in other yes, words. Yes, they have their hands full, so they're not asking for more. Well, and that's part of your point about our capacity. Even if you rely on these private organizations, well, which are really not private. I mean, they're arms of the government, in effect, Catholic charities and what have you. Like you said, they have their hands full dealing with other refugee-like situations. They can't deal with more refugees. Just as one last thing on this issue, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it or not, but there have been people pushing for private refugee resettlement or something where the private organizations would do it. What are your thoughts on that? That's a kind of the private sponsorship. Private sponsorship, That right. was President Obama in 2016 when he pushed the idea with UNHCR, and they are doing some kind of uh, private sponsorship, bringing refugees through uh, scholarships to universities, etc. I think it works more in other countries. Canada, for instance, has been doing it. Mm -hmm. The idea is the government not to pay organizations to help refugees. Let these organizations, whether private organization, religious organization, what have you, then do it themselves through their own funding. And I don't think that's a bad idea because you, you won't have a conflict of government, private and public right. at the same time. If it's helping refugee is a humanitarian right. call. And we have this organization who are humanitarian and they can do a job and they can reach out to universities or people who want to sponsor or foster or et cetera, right? So... I think that would be a good idea to do that. And then the government money should be targeting only in the own region, as we are doing, as we are helping people, refugees. And we can do a better job at that, but that's another issue. No, I agree. The private sponsorship, I only have two concerns with it. One is numbers. In other words, it has to happen under some kind of ceiling. It's not just anybody who's willing to take in refugees. But the other issue is, are they actually responsible for the costs of that person, which is kind of the way it worked after World War II when we took a lot of what they call displaced persons from Eastern and Central Europe? Or are they just going to 
be responsible for a few months and then sign them up for welfare. Because that's really the issue. If they're not eligible for taxpayer-funded benefits, then actually private sponsorship idea would be a good deal for taxpayers overall. But if it's really just having different organizations bring people in, be responsible for a few months for them, and then sign them up for welfare, which is what the contractors do now, then I don't know that it's actually benefiting the taxpayer. To address your first note about the numbers, Canada does it. It's still under the government. The numbers are there, so you can count exactly how many, but the funding comes from private. So it's organized, same system, organized, so you can always know how many are coming. Right. With the welfare and the help, I have two observations. One, you can ask for somebody who has been, supposedly, you're resettling people here who are just the most vulnerable and who are, you know, had just very, very extreme traumatic experiences. So, and they need time. And this time, perhaps help them longer. And then the second thing is that after one year, a refugee here has a green card. Right. So a green card holder can apply for any benefits they want. So now they are going to pay the whole year. Mm -hmm. Right. As I said, increase increase from eight months to a whole year. And then by law, they get a green card and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, then my point is this idea that private sponsorship is some kind of magic solution, I think. I'm open to the idea, but I think it's easy to exaggerate how different it would be. I don't know it would be that different, really. I think we should go back to the bases. Refugees need help in their own region. Right. Make UNHCR, United Nations, IOM, whatever, whoever is helping them more accountable, better help. You know, we want accountability for the billions of dollars you're spending and resettle only just a few, 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 the really emergency cases. Emergency cases who really need to come to the United States specifically. I think then it'll be the best solution for everyone. And less contentious, I think, as well. So, And so, I mean, that point here there is just to finish it up, to de-link refugee protection from immigration, because now it's just really seen as the same thing. In other words, there's all these different ways that people can get immigrants into the United States, and this is just one of them. In fact, some of these contractors actually have arrangements with meatpacking plants in the Midwest to funnel refugees into their meatpacking plants as employees. And that whole concept, I mean, I think we really do need to see a kind of delinking of refugee protection from immigration. Anyway, the paper is online at cis.org about Ukrainian refugees by Nayla Rush. And Nayla, we'll have you back again uh, when there's a, another big refugee issue to talk about. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. And finally, I wanted to talk about something else that's in the news. The border disaster created by the Biden administration is ongoing. And recently, the state of Texas is trying to take some measures to limit the consequences of the border disaster. This is not new. Texas, as well as other states, have sued in the courts on a variety of immigration-related issues. But what Governor Abbott in Texas has been trying to do is some things beyond that. And a while back, Texas decided it was going to build some sections of wall, of border fencing, on its own. And that has been ongoing. I think they completed the first section of it in South Texas a couple weeks ago. But 
Governor Abbott recently announced two other measures that got some attention. One may be more attention than the other. The one that got a lot of attention was he said he would be busing illegal aliens to Washington, D.C. This got lots of attention. And this week, the first, uh, I think, dozen or so, in fact, were bused to Washington and dropped off in front of the Capitol building. This is catnip for reporters and for activists on both sides of the issue, and we'll get a lot of coverage, but it is, you know, it's political theater. I mean, uh, it is a stunt in a sense. I don't even use that in a derogatory sense. You know, politics is partly theater, but it's not necessarily going to have much of an effect on getting the administration in Washington to do anything about the border disaster, specifically to delay the end of Title 42, which is expected on May 23rd, and everybody is worried about what the consequences of that are going to be because there's going to be a huge surge of people. But something else Governor Abbott started to do over the past week or so is maybe likely to get some more results, and that is he is having his Department of Public Safety do safety inspections of trucks coming from Mexico after they pass through the immigration and customs check that the federal government does at the border, of course. But right after that, Texas has the authority to do safety checks on these trucks. And so what they've done is at some of the busiest crossing points is do very detailed, very meticulous safety checks of all the trucks. And, you know, this slows down traffic immensely. Apparently the trucks are backing up for miles and miles into Mexico. And this is not presented as an attempt at political pressure. It's just a safety measure. They have the authority to do this. They need to check and make sure the truck's brakes work and all the rest of that. But it seems, you know, from the outside, pretty clearly, this is an attempt to put pressure on Mexico to do more to obstruct the flow, interfere with the flow of non-Mexican illegal aliens coming through that country and crossing our border. And everybody's complaining. The business groups on the U.S. side are complaining. The Mexican government is complaining. Apparently, the governor of Texas is going to be meeting with, or maybe has already met by the time you hear this, with the governor of Nuevo León, which is one of the border states in Texas and a lot of the roads that third country illegal immigrants take to get to South Texas go through the state of Nuevo León. And presumably to try to work with that governor to have him use his resources, his state police and what have you, to try to break up and redirect and interfere with this flow of third country illegal aliens coming to our border and then using bogus asylum claims as a way to get in. Maybe this will put pressure on Washington to also do something. I'm not hopeful about that. I think it's more likely to get the Mexicans to act because exports to the United States are extremely important for Mexico. They're important for us too, but they're more important for Mexico. And Laredo, Texas, which is one of the places where they're doing this inspection slowdown, as it were, is the number one truck crossing on the whole Mexican border. Car parts and all kinds of other materials go through there. This is the kind of thing that is going to cause economic pain if it continues. But the point of it seems to be to apply pressure 
and get Mexican authorities and maybe even the authorities in Washington to pay attention. This is the kind of thing states can do. Obviously, Texas is in a better position than other states to do this kind of particular application of pressure. But it's important because the states aren't just subdivisions of the federal government. They have their own authorities, and the federal government's abdication of its constitutional responsibilities on immigration have a real effect on the states, not just Texas, but every state, because in a sense, every state is a border state now. And so we'll see if these efforts by Texas do in fact bear fruit. But even if they don't, it's important that Texas give it a try because there's at least two and a half years or almost three years left in this administration. And the situation at the border is only getting worse. This is Mark Krikorian for Parsing Immigration Policy. If the podcast platform you're listening to this on allows ratings or reviews, please give us a rating or a review. And if you have any comments or complaints or what have you, feel free to just email me directly at msk at cis.org. And I hope you'll tune in next week.